2: Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Melissa Lee, and today for Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, fears out of Europe spilling into the U.S. market. Our investment committee is standing by to break down the fallout. Joining us for the hour, Anastasia Omaroso, Steve Weiss, Joe Terranova, and Rob Sechen. We kick things off with another potential bank blowout. Check out our chart of the day, Deutsche Bank CDS credit default swaps, Soaring, the fear spilling over into the U.S. banking sector. All the big banks in the red right now clearly signaling fear over the future. But just moments ago, we heard from St. Louis Fed President James Bullard. He just lifted his forecast for rates to five and three quarters percent. So who's going to be right? The banks and the markets or Bullard and the Fed? I mean, what was so interesting, Rob, is that the banks are signaling something else is going to happen. Markets are pressing in not just a pause but an actual pivot in terms of cuts and then you got Bullard coming out saying now I see the terminal rate even higher than where I was before.
3: So that shows you the predicament that the feds in right now they still have inflationary pressures which haven't subsided and they have this disinflationary shock to the banking ecosystem right and how do you reinstill confidence in a market that's not confident and so you have a lot of cracks that appears beneath the surface. Investors don't want to take risk going into the weekend. It's a it's a shoot first or run first and deal with the consequences later. I don't I don't know when you've come off SVB, you've come off Credit Suisse in the last two weekends that risk taking is something that I'm, I'm frankly shocked at the turn in markets today going into this weekend with all the news that's out there. And I think what investors have to grapple with, is how do you square that circle with with uh, loan growth possibly slowing because of what's happening in the retail banking system? There's no doubt deposits are gonna continue to be under stress. I don't care what Yellen says in the, in the messaging, right? If you're a depositor at one of these banks, you're a little nervous, right? So the the Treasury, the Fed, the FDIC have to think about what they can do to reinstill that confidence. And so far, the words aren't doing it. And so you're you're in this market where everybody's hanging on every word. And the you know, frankly, the Feds doing the best they can to kind of deal with the inflation problem, which is long term, and then also deal with a, with a cri- the crisis of the day. It's like whack a mole.
2: Steve Weiss, how do you position yourself in this sort of uh, environment where you have such disparate beliefs about where the economy is Either something's going to go awfully wrong, and the Fed's going to have to cut drastically, or things are going to be so strong as Bullard Bullard sees the economy as being strong, and once this whole financial stress is over, the Fed's going to go right back to fighting inflation and and raising rates.
4: Yeah. So, to me, it's a lose-lose for equity investors. Uh, because if the Fed does cut rates, it means because the it means the economy's in a tailspin and you're going to see that in earnings. So you're not winning in that scenario. So people are saying I'm bullish because the Fed's going to pivot and cut rates. That, that, that's ridiculous. OK, be careful what you wish for in terms of if the economy is not in a tailspin and it keeps going and tightening, you're still going to see pressure on earnings. So there are points in, in market cycles where you want to be defensive. If you're, if you're not the asset allocator, if you have to be in the market, and that's fine. But if you have the freedom of choice, if you're an absolute return investor, just be in treasuries. Take your 4% yield, if you're doing it on the short end of the curve, and be happy. There's a time to play, and there's a time to protect capital. This is a time to protect capital, and it will be for the next three months or six months. You can rely on technical, say, well, there's support here, but guess what? Then the support drops lower, and then that support that you saw is resistance. So there's no good dialogue here in my view, to be putting cash in the market. Now, if you have some positions where you have some nice gains in, or there's stocks that you own and that you don't want to sell, I get that. Hold on to them, because two, three years, maybe a year, they'll be higher. But to initiate new positions now is a mistake. So I wouldn't do it.
2: But Anastasia, lower rates, And this environment where you want safety, doesn't that provide more fuel for this growth trade that we've seen? I mean, we've seen the Nasdaq outperform the broader markets since the banking crisis began.
5: Uh, We've seen it outperform big time, Melissa. And, you know, look, I I know we're all looking at the same set of data, which is kind of screaming recession uh, at this point. But this recession doesn't need to be imminent, it doesn't have to be tomorrow. And I think one of the things I don't want to do is I don't want to pre trade it when the economy right now is actually still strong. I mean, coming into the year, we were looking for 0% GDP growth, and lo and behold, the first quarter is looking like a 2.5% quarter. You know, you've got consumer resiliency, you've got consumer confidence that's picking up, you've got China picking up, you've got new orders in manufacturing picking up. So all of a sudden, this is still a pretty strong environment for the economy. And then, to your point, Melissa, then you add on top of that the fact that this is a de facto pause from the Fed. I'm not sure I agree with the market pricing on the rate cuts, but this is a pause and this is likely the end of the tightening cycle. And historically, the markets are choppy as the Fed tightens, but then after that tightening is done, there's this kind of stage of euphoria, you know, maybe we got the worst behind us, and so the markets can still perform during that time. And so that's what I think we might be experiencing right now is this, you know, market that's in relief mode and that can last for some time. And to your question, Melissa, you know, which one is the Fed, you know, who's going to be right, the banking sector or the Fed or the market pricing? I think at the end of the day, the Fed will pay attention to the banking sector because, as Fed Chair Powell said, the fact that uh, banks are in turmoil today means they're going to tighten credit conditions. And that, in and of itself, take care, takes care of some of the rate hikes that might have had to do otherwise. So no matter which way you look at it, we're likely at the end of the uh, rate hiking cycle, and that can't support the growth trade.
2: The tightening of credit is something that we're not necessarily thinking of as sort of a de facto rate hike. Mark Zandy of Moody's yesterday, I spoke to him on the exchange, and he said that he sees what has gone on so far as causing the equivalent of two to three rate hikes, Joe. So that's sort of interesting to think about, that. That we might be facing a credit tight that would be the equivalent of two to three rate hikes on top of the lagged effects of the rate hikes that are in the pipeline.
1: I think that's rather obvious, Melissa. I think that's been been, you know, over the last several weeks, clearly being messaged from the bond market. And just look at the spread between a two and a 10, which has narrowed that inversion down to 35 basis points. That's clearly signaling that there is a deflationary economic contraction ahead, and a lot of the work that's needed to be done by the Federal Reserve is ultimately going to be done by the economy and the bond market itself. But I I just think collectively, listening to to the commentary from everyone, I think the hardest thing to do right now is to forecast the next 10% in this market. You have to remember, this market has been in a range between 3,842 now since the early stages of November. And you have a, a tremendous amount of capital, $5.1 trillion that's now sitting in money market funds. What that has done is that's drained participation. It's drained liquidity from the market itself. You're seeing the bid offer spread widen. There's less uh, of an ability to execute on an order, whether it's in equities, credit, or derivatives themselves. So I think investors ultimately need to keep that in mind. Liquidity has come out of the capital markets. The Federal Reserve better be paying attention to that.
2: Yeah, the fastest rush to cash cash funds since COVID, according to Bank of America, $143 billion in the latest week to global cash funds. Rob, is that what you're finding from your your clients?
3: Yeah, there's there's no question that people are looking for different sources of liquidity, different sources of safety outside the banking system and i think just to echo what a lot of the people have said on here it's a time to run the ball it's not a time to throw the ball down on the field so if you're an allocator and you have to be invested you got to be really thoughtful about the the uh quality side of that, the price side of that. When I think about what's happening in in the banking system and thinking about the long-term effects of that as it relates to companies, if you looked at 2016 and 2018, which were times that the Fed pivoted, loan growth was still there and so you could return to the same playbook you had, which is this tech playbook. This high growth playbook, this taking risk playbook, because that lent, that lent uh, that lent credence to risk taking. Today it's a little different. We may get a pivot without loan growth, and that and, and that changes the game. So technology right now is uh, is, is is an old playbook uh, is an old playbook scheme, and I think it's going to work for a bit, but I think you have to be careful prospectively.
4: Steve? Steve? Hello?
3: You're up, Steve.
4: Yeah, I, I, I didn't hear. I'm sorry. Look, here, here's what I'd say. You can bet on the rate cycle and you bet on rates coming to an end, but you're losing sight of the bigger picture. Markets ultimately trade on valuation and valuation is extended. We've seen multiple expansion. So do you really want to bet on the on a good economy staying good when you're just at the beginning of the damage of what the Fed tightening cycle has done? I'd say no, I'd say it's a very bad bet to make. It's just not that simple. So earnings will decline, which means that valuations will be more extended. Just wait, don't be a hero. Keep your money in cash.
3: Steve, I have a question for you. At what price do you get, you and I have both been cautious, at what price on the S&P, in what market environment, do you get more constructive on what's happening uh, on, on putting money to work. I mean, listen, we're a little lower than this. Where are you as it relates to that?
4: Look, I, I think just uh, intellectually, from a math perspective, that if you're looking at 200 and SP earnings, that you could you could maybe put money in at 3200 you can go, you can go to 3000 i mean the long-term multiple on s p earnings is what 14 15 times so not but, here but, where has but it i've said it repeatedly
3: right right where's it become right. seductive so i've said steve weiss
4: i can't say that because i don't know what i do know is i'm going to miss the turn in the market Okay, I'd rather miss the first 5 or 10% up and then catch the beginning of a new bull market rather than take the next 20% down. I hate losing money. And there's no reason to put that capital at risk when you've got an economy that is declining. What Anastasia said about the economy being strong, that's not a positive, that's a negative. Because it's going to support continued job growth, continued Long term, wage well, growth. Yeah, but okay.
2: right now, but right. Right now so she, she's, she's talking, talking and, and, and I don't negative. want to speak to... I don't want to speak for Anastasia. We'll go back to her, but she's saying that we're in a period where it's sort of Goldilocks. We're in a period where things are but actually still pretty good, and you don't want to miss the sort of euphoria. But right now, Steve, right now, but, why why aren't we? Rates are low. Um, okay, we got our banking crisis. Let's put that aside. But I mean, the economy, for all intents and purposes, looks pretty good.
4: Here's where I, we're not, because it takes a year it could take as much as 18 months but it takes a year for Fed tightening cycles to impact the economy. So if you think the impact of the economy begins and ends with SVB and Signature Bank, then party on, okay? But then I'll find you on a street corner begging for dollars because that's not the full impact of it. The full impact of it is companies like we've seen with big internet companies cutting jobs. You'll see more of that. You'll see order rates slow. So we're always seeing that. Used car prices coming down 13%. So you see more and more of that. You can't freeze in time and say, wow, the Fed's done. Well, the Fed's not done. We've heard that time and time again. But even when the Fed is done tightening, the Fed's not done from their impact on the economy. And I can't emphasize that enough. And you can't turn a deaf ear to it.
5: Well, well I, I do want, look, I want to go back to you. Yes, <laughs> I, Anastasia, I, I do please. agree, Melissa, that, uh, you know, the, the Fed, I think the Fed is done, but the impact on the economy is not done. And one of the things, one of the new metrics that the Fed has given us to watch over the coming months is what do the banks do in terms of credit conditions and we know exactly what they're going to do if you look at the last senior loan officer survey you already saw that a great percentage of banks has been tightening uh, their loan standards and they've been demanding a higher spread uh, over their cost of funds on the loans that they're underwriting so when we and by the way this survey was done in january the results of it were released in february so when we get the next result which is going to be in May. I suspect we're going to see an even greater tightening of financial conditions. And all things equals, this does mean that loan growth is going to slow down ahead. But guess what? It's slowing down from a pretty fast clip. It was expanding at 10 or 12% year over year for some categories. But I think when the Fed looks at this and when they see that the credit cycle is turning here and turning it down that should give them enough reason to pause what i'm saying I'm not i can't play this out for the next six months to a year right now but what i'm saying is for the next quarter or so all of a sudden you have the economy that's still resilient and companies by the way have cut back their earnings estimates by a lot i mean if you think about the s p five hundred estimates for this year they were supposed to be two hundred fifty dollars they were cut back to two hundred twenty four So we already saw a 10% earnings revisions, and you typically see a 13% median revision in a recession. So, And the economy's been surprising to the upside. So I actually think the near-term scenario is we hopefully get this Fed pause, and companies may sound a little bit more upbeat on this exact economic environment than they did in the beginning of the year. So this is why I say for now the stocks are hanging in. And Melissa, valuations have corrected. You know, you look at the Nasdaq. It was trading at 35 times earnings, uh, kind of at the peak of you know post-COVID environment. It is at 22 times today. The S&P, if you look at it um, on earnings for the next two years, not just this year, it's trading at 16 and a half times. If this economy is not a recession yet, that maybe this is a sustainable level for now.
4: All right, <laughs> let's move on but, but here. Our Lisa, next if guest I, if says I can there, just could... answer that. Okay, uh, You know, l- let me just answer. The, the question directly <laughs> for Rob. I mean, you've heard, of EBIT, you've heard of EBITDA, right? E-B-I-T-D-A. Well, I believe that you should be using EB-A-R um, um, or, or AU. Earnings before. Earnings before analysts, analysts are real and they're not real. So until you, until you stop seeing analysts coming out and raising their price targets on Nvidia, you know, from 350 to 400 or whatever they're doing, the market's not going to settle down. So again, this is a moment in time, the valuation today. It's not the appropriate measure because right. earnings are going to come down making this valuation much higher.
2: That's like the worst acronym I've ever heard and is definitely yeah, you not going to on. But I get But what it you're got saying. your
4: attention, Mel. I, Because it was so lousy. We got to move on. We got to
2: move on. Our next guest says there could be a near term pullback in the cards. Mark Newton is the global head of technical strategy at FundStrat. Why pullback? How big of a pullback, Mark?
6: Hey, Melissa. Great to be here. Look, I think it's going to be minor in scope, but there needs to be some stabilization in the banking sector. That's the bottom line. I think investors uh, are concerned about lack of a coherent message between Powell and Yellen and obviously the Fed's formal commitment to QT when we've just seen nearly a $300 billion. You know, raise in uh, the Fed's balance sheet in the last week, and so really we don't know what to make of this. Uh, but a lot of this really screams of hysteria. You know, you look at what's happening with with Deutsche. Um, th- this isn't uh, Credit Suisse. You know, these aren't these AT1 bonds are, are a very different picture. And so, you know, in general, I do not view this as being systemic. I think it's really idiosyncratic type issues with the banking system and. You know, bottom line is we'll see some stabilization in the banks and things will actually be in pretty good shape. And we heard that, you know, cash levels have risen to 5.1 trillion investors right now. Retail is sitting on more cash and at the height of the pandemic. And so sentiment truly has gotten very, very negative right now. And that's really a big positive during such a seasonally bullish time as we're seeing this year. So I think we'll blow over. I I honestly don't see this as, as too big a deal. But yes, lack of stabilization and financials certainly a very big part of the S&P that really needs to hold. Um, To your other point that we were saying earlier, look, technology is working phenomenally well. Uh, Investors are certainly sniffing out uh, a pivot in the Fed, and that does aid growth at a time when we direly need it. So technology is acting great, and there's no evidence of that rolling over. We see great movement in stocks that comprise a lot of the S&P and the NASDAQ, Apple and Microsoft. Uh, sentiment is, has gone from negative to now very bearish and could border on fearful in the next week if we don't stabilize, and that's actually a very big positive. Uh, and we're in a pre-election year, so nothing can really get accomplished. And, and you know, honestly, you know, when we see you know, a divided government like this, uh, it tends to be a very big positive for markets. We've seen that time and time again. We're heading into the most bullish month of the entire year, seasonally which is April. Right. And, you know, sentiment's very negative. So I think all those are a very big positive. I see the extent of the pullback as being two to three percent to really 3,800 max by the end of the month.
2: Yeah. I mean, Apple and Microsoft alone are north of 13% of the S&P 500 right now. So it's, uh, you know, you got those, you got the uh, some weighting in the S&P 500. Joe, you got a question? I,
1: I do, Mark. Good to see you today. Mike Santoli's done a great job on the network talking about the pattern that currently exists where you have the October low and then you have the retest in March. And if you go back historically, that generally signals that that October low was the low in the downtrend. Um, How do you see that? And can you provide some historical context to when you get the October low, March retest? Where's the market go from there?
6: well i just look at sentiment as being as negative as it is and you know heading into the third year typically we see bear markets in second years of a decade you know ending when you get to february or march of the third year and really we're, we're here and um you know fear is on the rise we see technology acting great industrials to their credit have broken out to new multi-year highs in regards to the s p um health you know, is starting to come back. We've seen some great movement in some of the medical device stocks of, of late. And so, you know, healthcare, obviously the second largest uh, component of the S&P. Uh, healthcare and technology are very important. We need to see some stabilization if financials can hold in the next week or two, and I think they can. Uh, that's going to be- Mark, I don't- de- Mark, I, Go ahead.
1: Mark, I, I just want st- to stop you for one second because I want to ask the question another way, I guess. Yeah. What are the months of the calendar year in which the market generally tends to bottom on a historical perspective. Is it October? Is it March?
6: Well, it is the fall, and typically it bottoms during times of fear. It can be anywhere from, from August through October, and, you know, we've seen that. Um, rate rally that was completely unexpected by investors in January, and we've given some of that back in February. Uh, technology was positive throughout that whole time, and that is also important. So, you know, seasonally, it's important for investors to recognize that, you know, you rally into the spring. Normally you have a correction in the second, the third quarter, and then you rally towards year end. I think this playbook is happening all over again.
2: Mark, thank you. Mark Newton. Thank
6: you, have a good day. Thank you.
2: Up next, our call of the day. Netflix adding to this week's gains following more bullish analyst commentary today. We'll break it down when halftime returns. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Let's get to our call of the day. Shares of Netflix higher again on positive commentary, this time from Bank of America. Let's get to Julia Borston with the very latest. Julia.
7: Melissa, that's right. Shares of Netflix up another roughly 2% today. This after surging 9% yesterday. Bank of America out with a note this morning, maintaining its buy rating on the stock and its $410 price target. The stock's just at $326 right now. Uh, the saying Bank of America saying, quote, Netflix is poised to outperform driven by three main catalysts, still significant subscriber runway, ramping of its AVOD or ad supported streaming offering and upside from password sharing Crackdown. This comes after yesterday a report from a company called Yip It showed that Netflix's crackdown on password sharing in Canada is driving an acceleration in subscriber additions. Bernstein saying of that behavior of Canadian subscribers that it bodes well for a crackdown on password sharing here in the U.S. Now, just last month, the company rolled out the new password protocols for Canada, New Zealand, Portugal, and Spain, but we don't yet know when these new protocols will launch here in the U.S. Melissa.
2: All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borson, I think, I believe Canada is the second largest market for Netflix outside the United States. You don't like any of these. You don't like the whole bunch, Rob.
3: Yeah, well, I like being a a customer. (laughs) <laughs> but not necessarily <laughs> not owning, not necessarily being an investor. I mean, when we screen these companies, we screen on fundamental metrics, and they just don't screen well relative to the others that we look at. So, like free cash flow margin, Netflix is at 5%, 13% return on invested capital. Okay, but when you look at companies like Google, mm-hmm. free cash flow margin 21%, Meta. 16% and, you know, higher returns on invested capital. So, you know, we're fundamental investors, even in the growth sp- growth category, so growth at a reasonable price. And ultimately, we've just not got interested based on price. Now, what I would say,
8: mm-hmm.
3: a lot of companies that start to return and think about profitability, then they're going to start to show up on our screens, fundamentally. Right. And so we maybe might get it, it. Maybe it's a matter of time for It might for be Netflix. tomorrow's business for
2: us. Weiss, uh, where do you start uh, on Netflix, which has been a laggard compared to its uh, big cap years?
4: Yeah, so uh, so Netflix is starting to get cheap again, but recent move has taken away from that. But but streaming is just a very, very expensive business. Netflix has been the closest to getting it right. But the impact on the others from, their, from paying for their... Uh, you know reduced pricing because of the ad version of it that's hitting the other so you can't distinguish that comment from what's happening with Disney today which is taking a hit because let's face it if my views right and the economy is declining the consumer's wallet's going to get a lot thinner so they're going to look to cut costs so having all these streaming services again it's just not going to be an option so I think you'll see, continue to see winners and losers, but like, like Rob, I'd wait for a better entry point in Netflix.
2: Joe, how about you?
1: Disagree, disagree with both Steve and Rob. I think when you look at Netflix and you're studying price, let's go back and remember last April when they reported earnings, they had a significant price gap. That's going to come off the charts for the momentum strategies, the quant strategies that are looking at price on a one-year basis. So if you're observing a one-year period, a three-month, a six-month period, Netflix on a chart is going to begin towards the end of April to look very compelling. It's made a significant recovery from last spring's low. It's in a nice, solid uptrend. It's above its critical uh, moving averages. And you will see a lot of the non-discretionary quant funds go in and buy this in the spring if it maintains price right here between three and a quarter and
4: 350.
2: All right, straight ahead. Tim Cook, among the few top American business leaders in China, ahead of a big business summit this weekend. We're going to be live on the ground at the very latest next.
0: B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers,
2: the European markets are coming uh, are closing for the day. Let's get to CNBC's Arabile Gumede live in our London newsroom with more. Arabile
8: Yeah, so markets have certainly gone down today, hit a lot by the banking stocks. Of course, Deutsche Bank certainly in focus. It does follow on from the saga we have seen across the globe, particularly from the U.S., having seen Signature, Silver Bank and all the others. But Deutsche Bank certainly in key focus today does follow on from yesterday's uh, big jump then in the CDSs that we saw, uh, which kind of gave no apparent clear reason for that spike in those CDSs. But uh, that number jumping up increasing fears of where Deutsche Bank certainly might be. We saw that stock even fall down as much as 14% today, uh, if not just a little bit more. By the end of trade, however, around 8% weaker, 8.6% weaker by the end of the closing uh, the trading day. Then around 5% weaker were the banking stocks overall too, so they clearly uh, had an overall weakness. The sentiment is worrisome around banking stocks as to where exactly do they currently sit. Of course, the key sentiments have been that you know, with enough liquidity in the market. Those banking stocks should actually be fine. But the general red across the board does show that there is some fear. Uh, European leaders have also been uh, at a summit today, then also just sharing some sentiments. Uh, the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, even speaking about how uh, Deutsche Bank is a profitable business with no reasons for concern. So clearly, markets still feeling the pinch, but regulators seemingly uh, unperturbed too much. By the saga that is currently happening in the market.
2: All right, Arabile Gumede, thank you so much. Let's turn from Europe to Asia now. A number of top CEOs, including Tim Cook in Beijing this weekend for a government-backed China Development Forum. Our Eunice Yun is live in Beijing with more Eunice. Hey Melissa,
9: well Tim Cook Tim Cook stopped by an Apple flagship store here in Beijing, and he posted about it um, on his Weibo account to his 1.5 million followers thanking Chinese Apple fans and his staff. Uh, Cook is expected to attend the three-day China Development Forum, which is going to kick off on Saturday. This is a government-hosted event that become quite high profile. Uh, This year, the theme is uh, supposed to be about the economic recovery and um, really seen as a reopening party for Beijing, at least from the Chinese perspective. Um, However, the, the atmosphere around it is really quite different. And that's because fewer American executives are attending and those who are attending are really downplaying their role. Uh, I'm being told they're opting out of panels, they're avoiding uh, media interviews, they're skipping um, investment announcements. A lot of that is because of the sentiment uh, back home, particularly in D.C., and that hardened attitude towards China. At the same time, a lot of these CEOs do want to come here. Uh, they're telling me they want to uh, see what's happening on the ground. They want to understand what's going on with their operations, especially after essentially being locked out of China for the past three years because of the COVID controls. And then they're also um, really curious about the new government and the uh, new uh, leadership team under Xi Jinping. And in fact, a lot of those Chinese officials are expected to be at the event, including uh, President Xi's uh, chief of staff. Melissa? Melissa?
2: Eunice, you know, so I'm wondering what the temperature is over there in terms of the reaction to the TikTok hearings yesterday. They got very heated. They are very intense. Clearly, lawmakers have TikToks in TikTok in their sites. Um, is there outrage in China? Well, in terms of the, um, just on social media and the general public,
9: um, there's actually been a lot of empathy towards uh, Shou Chu, the CEO of TikTok. Um, People were saying that um, there was just so much hostility directed towards him. From a government perspective, the foreign ministry um, uh, denounced the U.S. Congress's um, stance, um, really citing one U.S. lawmaker um, as uh, saying um, um, that—oh, I blanked out right now on what the U.S. lawmaker said—but oh, right, that it was a witch hunt. Against uh, TikTok, and so uh, basically saying that uh, this is the the Chinese perspective. But they also uh, were repeating that the Chinese government um, doesn't hasn't in any way ever asked a Chinese company to um, to uh, kind of look into data or collect data on um, on individuals or companies in other countries that, that would breach local law. Um, but you know, I think at, at sometimes uh, just because. TikTok is trying to distance itself from the Chinese government. Having the Chinese government so vehemently defend them um, doesn't necessarily work in their favor.
2: All right, Eunice, thank you. Good to see you, Eunice Yoon, in Beijing, where it's the wee hours of the morning over there. So, <laughs> um, Anastasia, you say that the real trade-off of all of this uh, is is onshoring, the move to onshoring.
5: It is. I mean, look, this is a regime change, especially for big tech that has been exposed internationally. I think China is very much in defense mode in terms of protecting its national interests, its data, and so is U.S., and frankly, rightfully so. But there's a couple of implications. You know, I do think that big tech companies will adapt, will adjust. Uh, you know, because if you think back to 2017, 2018, when we had you know the issue with the supply chains, those companies moved the supply chains where they needed to move them. So one of the biggest implications is onshoring. So. Rather than storing data outside of the U.S., the focus should be storing data within the U.S. And that does mean, you know, building up duplicity and, you know, more data center capacity, for for example, or other commercial real estate, which, you know, while we kind of divest of office, I guess, you know, storage and data centers, that's the part of real estate that I think benefits from this onshoring move.
2: Weiss, I want to go to you because, you know, after the TikTok hearings and as we go into this summit with, with U.S. company CEOs over in China, you know, there's a real fear that perhaps investors aren't pricing in some sort of risk to the China operations of, of these multinational companies. I mean, an Apple, a Tesla, they've got a lot to lose if China says, you know what, you're going to do that to TikTok or we're going to do something to your companies too?
4: Yeah, look, to me, if you're a U.S. company that can get out of China, you should get out of it as quickly as possible and not invest anymore. And we've seen them doing that. Apple's kind of in a unique situation because they're one of the largest private employers in China, so China's sort of got to treat them well. But, but you know, you're dealing with, with a regime that doesn't really care about the U.S., hates the U.S. There's lots of animosity. They've embraced Russia recently, even more so. So I don't think that the market's properly uh, assessing the risks in China. So I would not own any Chinese stocks. Um, and if I were a company, I would pull my capital out of there. But it takes a while to replace the supply chain. You just can't build these factories overnight. So I agree with Anastasia. It's a long-term tailwind for onshore. But I would just you know stay away from Chinese risk, period, and store
2: all right, coming up, oil prices under pressure with the energy sector among the day's biggest laggards. How the committee is positioned next on Halftime. Oil prices falling today with Brent and WTI crude down by about 2 percent, extending yesterday's losses. Uh, Joe, you have a lot of energy exposure. The U.S. has indicated that it's not going to immediately refill the SPR, which is uh, leading to some of this pressure.
1: I appreciate you reminding me of my overweight energy position, which has been absolutely horrid. The supplies of oil coming out from Russia certainly have been weighing on price. But I think what's weighing on price more than that is just the universal overweight positioning that exists in the energy sector. Uh, What's interesting is on the pure commodity side, when you're looking at CTAs that are trading oil, refined products, and natural gas futures they are now maintaining short positions. So, Melissa, that's almost your last line of defense as you stare at your overweight energy position and realize uh, that it is certainly underperforming, the rest of the market and technology in particular. But your hope is that on the future side, the market has become so incredibly short. And then from the fundamental perspective, there is value in a lot of companies because of this decline, in particular on the natural gas side, so, you have to conceptually introduce the possibility that we will see an increase in MA activity where larger oil uh, EP companies will seek to gain access to direct shale plays, uh, specifically targeting a lot of these natural gas companies that have declined so significantly. But no doubt about it, there's significant stress in maintaining an overweight positioning in energy, and you're really down to your last line of defense before you realize you're gonna to have to reduce that sizing back to at least market weight.
2: Are you re- are you realizing that, Rob Seachin? I mean, misery loves company, you're also overweight energy, so. Yeah, it's, Joe's it's, not, not, alone. it's not our Joe's favorite not
3: place to be uh, right now, but it was our favorite place to be last year, and we realized that some of this is technical, hedging around recession fears some of its positioning came in with you know these being the fundamentally most attractive stocks out there from a PE standpoint you know what they still are you've got companies like EOG which we own that break even on their oil prices is 32 $32 a barrel you also have the fact that The greatest cure for lower oil prices is lower oil prices, because supply starts to come off. And that's a really important part of what could drive this forward with some really inexpensive businesses. I'm I'm not going to kid you, I'm nervous around the recession fears, but the reality of it is you have a margin of safety in price.
2: Yeah. Anastasia, where do you stand on oil energy?
5: Well, it's interesting that Rob brought up the recession fears, because I think that's exactly what's being priced into oil right now. And I do think that's a bit of a near-term overreaction. I mean, you saw the prices plunge right as uh, rates were plunging. And just as the rates markets are pricing in rate cuts because the economy is going to deteriorate so much, that's essentially what's happening with oil. We're writing down demand expectations. But let's look at the near-term data, which is the pickup in China mobility, for example. If you look at the snapback in traffic congestion in China, it is well over and above the last three years combined. You know, if you look at the mobility in the United States, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, Again, the consumer is still driving, the consumer is flying, and the demand for oil is still stable. And same thing in Europe. As Rob said, you know, if you have lower oil prices of gasoline and not gas, all things equal, that should actually prop up demand. So I think we're overreacting on the demand side pricing in that recession. uh, But I think that's premature. So. From an equity investor in energy stocks perspective, I would actually like adding to some of those. You've got the balance sheets, you've got the dividend yields, and again, take advantage of some of that overreaction.
2: All right. up next, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word. Halftime, be right back. Welcome back to Halftime Report. Senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word. What do you make of this uh, lack of action in the markets? Well,
10: the lack (laughs) of action on a net basis. But, you know, it's a matter of kind of where we've come from and how we're getting here and and the testing process. Month to date, the S&P tech sector has a 35 percentage point performance spread relative to banks. Okay, that has to be resolved at some point, at least for a period of time in some direction. Now, the question is, The the big growth stocks buckle, the the indexes have to succumb to that, or can you get a bid in some of the most oversold parts of the market? Today, some relief in the banks. It's not that dramatic. It's just an alleviation of some of the selling pressure. Um, Still relieves the bigger question of of whether the stock market is underreacting to events right now and to the drama in the bond market and what the implications are of all those things in terms of uh, how the yield structure is everything we're describing uh, i don't think it's necessarily underreacting but it's it's maybe carving out the most comfortable potential path that you can conceive. In other words, it's 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 insulated from a lot of the volatility, but for how long is the question?
5: Do you
2: think that the markets are overlooking the the tightening of credit that is still to come from the as a result of the banking crisis specifically? I
10: don't know that that the markets overlooking that. I think the market does not have a handle on how to assess that at so this point. So then they say, "I'm not going to I'm not going to sure right it's now." because that's what it feels like, right? You have oh. to wait for it to work its way through, and you're coming from a high nominal growth economy. It seems like things have been held, holding together in terms of the here and now mm-hmm. in terms of growth. But uh, I do think that's why people are on edge about it. I mean, clearly it's yeah. one of those big unknowns. You just don't know whether uh, you can set it aside or you, and by the way, people have a lot of cash. I think that's they the do. other piece of it. So you, you, people have enabled themselves to feel okay, either sitting it out or riding it out.
2: Yeah, Mike, good to see you. Thank you, Mike Santoli. All right, well, the committee is getting ready to grade your trade, but first, as we head to break, a message from NYSE President Lynn Martin as CNBC celebrates women's heritage.
7: What I would love others to learn from my personal journey is don't be afraid to take risks. Don't assume your career has a linear path. Mine certainly didn't. As someone who started their career coding, I never thought I would be president of the New York Stock Exchange and leading the world's largest global exchange. So don't be afraid to take the nonlinear path in your career.
2: For Grade My Trade. First off, for Joe, Steve's average cost in CrowdStrike is 122. What are your thoughts on the stock at its current levels? Are there better options in the space? Joe?
1: Well, so far, let's give Steve a B on the trade. We have maintained the March 7th gap higher from what was really a little bit better than feared our earnings report. I think the conservative guidance for 2024 for this company really lead you when you're thinking about cybersecurity, Melissa, to own CrowdStrike, which is what I do over Palo Alto or Fortinet, which are your other two options in cybersecurity.
2: All right. This one is for Rob Holger in Switzerland, bought Pfizer and Amgen 10% higher from current levels and is looking to add to his position. So what is a good good price here?
3: Listen, I I give him an an A minus, but I'm not allowed to do that according to Patty Martell, so we have to go with well, the
2: guidelines. Isn't this all subjective?
3: Well, I don't know. I'm just telling Is you it, what Patty told. I mean, he's lost me.
2: money. It's 10% lower, so <laughs> Get it. Well, so we only going to have an F or a well, C or something?
3: No, because <laughs> okay, any, ahead, we we fine. own those positions, Mal. And uh, these are high quality businesses, 30% free cash flow margins, 20% return on invested capital. He's gonna be fine. I wouldn't buy more now. I'm more of a cash holder going into the weekend, but um, you know, they're good businesses.
2: I feel like you're an easy grader and Joe's tough, because Joe gave the other guy, Steve, a B, and he actually made money on that trade already because he was 10 bucks higher on crowds. Anyway,
3: listen, um, I, I'm that type of teacher. I don't know. Joe, you were a hard grader.
2: Joe's, Joe's a hard one. Um, let's see how Weiss grades. Weiss, this one's for you. Liam bought Lululemon for 176 and then 204 in 2019. Should he hold, add, sell? Yeah.
4: Well, uh, unlike Rob, I, I can be a rule breaker, so I'm going to give him an A+. Plus. And this goes back to my earlier comments. If you own quality stocks, and I think Lulu's a quality stock, you hold on to it you hold on through up cycles, down cycles. It's a great brand. Others have tried to break into it with minimum impact. But they have some inventory issues. Hopefully they've whittled through them. So we'll find out when they report this this week coming up. But I like it. So, uh, so I think it is worth a premium. I'd rather buy it cheaper personally. But if I owned it, I'd, I'd stick with it.
2: I don't think an A-plus has ever been given. I mean, forgive me if I'm wrong, but there's not even a graphic for an A-plus. Only an A showed up.
4: So good job <laughs> well, out there. As so I said, in Washington, I, 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 a+? I, I'm a rule breaker.
5: Yeah, apparently. Hey, Final hey, Trades hey, no, I go where Fi- yeah, others are goals. afraid to go.
2: <laughs> okay, we're going to break.
5: <laughs>
2: Final Trades, Anastasia.
5: Uh, I'M STICKING WITH THE NASDAQ. I THINK THE SECTOR BENEFITS OBVIOUSLY FROM THE RESET IN RATES um, AND POTENTIAL FOR M&A. STEVE?
4: Bungie, I HAD BOUGHT STOCK BACK. I SOLD IT ON THE POP WHEN IT GOT PUT INTO THE S&P AND I THINK IT TRADES BETWEEN 90 AND 100. JOE? MELISSA, A LOT OF SUGAR CRAVINGS DURING THIS
1: MARKET VOLATILITY. Everyone's EATING CHOCOLATE. HERSHEY GOING TOWARDS AN ALL-TIME HIGH.
3: And Rob. Gilead, great way to play defense, and we just added it this week.
2: See, you at five on fast, the exchange begins right now.
1: You've been listening to CNBC's halftime report, The Podcast. You can always
4: catch us live, weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. From their innovative practice facility,